Welcome to a Kessler Foundation Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds podcast featuring Dr. Joseph Hidler, CEO of Artec LLC, inventor of the Zero-G Gate and Balance Training System, presenting Motoring Learning Strategies Applied to Neurorehabilitation. This presentation was recorded on Tuesday, March 31st, 2015 and was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Injury System with support from the National Institute on Disability and Rehabilitation Research, U.S. Department of Education grant number H133N110020. So today, for at least most of my talk, I'm going to take off my Aratec hat and uh, maybe cover my symbol, and I'm going to put on my research hat. So for those of you who don't know me, from 2000 until 2008, I was the director of research at the National Rehabilitation Hospital, and I was also a professor at Catholic University. And it was there that I developed the Zero-G and subsequently brought it to market. Um, but uh, what I'm going to talk about today is, is some of the work that I'd done, some of the research, and some of the research of my colleagues uh, had done. And a lot of this is a catalyst for uh, why we developed the Zero-G uh, Gait and Balance Training System. And it really stems to my background, and I did my PhD work at Northwestern University, and we had a really amazing motor control, motor learning lab under the direction of Zev Reimer. And so my background is really in motor learning and motor control. And so um, I'm going to talk about that because I think it's, it's a real shame how uh, little in terms of our, the strategies and what we know about motor learning and motor control are really being used in rehab. And I think that uh, a lot more can be done. And so I'm going to touch on some of the, some of the basic strategies that, that I think that we've tried to capture in Zero-G. And, um, and uh, that's why we developed the system. And it really starts with a nice quote. And, and I don't know if you guys know John Krakauer. He was at Columbia. He's now at Johns Hopkins. He's a friend and, and a really amazing guy. And this is maybe one of the best papers. And I've read thousands probably of papers. This is one of the best papers I've ever read. And if you ever want to really read a, a great paper talking about these, what the topic I'm going to present today, John's paper is great. And I love this quote, and really that states that rehabilitation needs to emphasize techniques that promote the formation of appropriate internal models and not just the repetition of movements. And so what does that really mean? What, what is an internal model? And it gets back to really asking the question of how do we move? Like if, if I talk to my mom and I say, mom, how do, you, how do you think we move? Like, how do you pick up a glass? She says, my brain just tells my arm to move and it goes. Well, that's a simplistic way to think about it, but how do you really do it? And if you think about it, we have some desired limb trajectory. And I, I'm not sure if you can bring the lights down a little bit. That might help. If you can't, that's okay too. Um, but you have some desired limb trajectory. And what that limb trajectory is, that's the focus of a whole other talk that I won't really get into. But basically, we know in some ways, maybe it's to reach to grab a drink, or maybe it's as you're walking, you want to basically move your limbs in a certain way. And so we have some inverse model in our brain. And it's developed, it starts early on, and basically we've developed it our whole life. And so what that does is we plug in what we, how we want to move, and out of this inverse model comes the motor commands, the, the commands that go down your spinal cord, innervate your muscles, and result in limb motion. So basically, we innervate the spinal cord, the reflexes, and you have some actual limb trajectory. And we also have a forward model. And so we kind of know where our limbs should go based on 
what's coming out from motor commands, and then we have a project, predicted movement trajectory. And this is called our internal model. Internal models are really nice, because if you think about it, how could you, how other, without a model, how could you, say, walk? Well, you could memorize exactly how you need to turn on all your muscles in your lower limbs, and you could do that, right? So you'd say, okay, Soleus, fire at this time, and then TA, fire at this time. So you could memorize the sequence. But what's the problem with that? You'd have to have memorizations of patterns for everything you possibly can do, and it's just not possible. But if you have a model, and you know more or less what goes in, what more or less is gonna come out, it generalizes to every movement we have, and we're very good at it. I can have you guys do crazy things, and within a short period of time, you can figure out how to do it. So this is our internal model. And it starts developing at a very young age. And you can see here this infant, this newborn, She's not really walking very successfully, but she's executing stepping patterns, and essentially this starts the formation, and a lot of this is reflexively driven, and then you get into more cortically driven and so forth, but these internal model formations start at birth, and they continue as we move into uh, adulthood. This is a cool video, and it just illustrates how good we can be, right? I mean, these guys are playing ping pong which is a fun game if you like it, but these guys take it to a whole new level. I mean, he's figuring out where does that ball come? How do I swing my racket? How do I move myself? How do I do all these things? So it continues to evolve through our whole life. How these guys play like this, I have no idea, but they do, and then finally they just decide that we're sick of playing the point. But. While this is all interesting, what happens what in your patients you see every day? And so you can imagine you take a patient with a stroke, for example, for 60 years or 65 years, they've been using this model to execute movements, upper limb, lower limb, et cetera, and now all of a sudden you've knocked out a certain neural substrate in the brain. And so now the, their internal model, this model that has been completely appropriate for their movements their entire life is no longer appropriate. Neither is their spinal cord. That has changed, say, in spinal cord injury. Reflexes change. Muscles change. Everything changes. So what we're left with is somebody like this, this young man after a traumatic brain injury. And so he's trying. He's doing his best. But this is clearly an example of inefficient motor control. Okay? And so this is kind of give you a context of, of where we go. So what are some of the motor learning principles that really should be applied to, to rehabilitation? Well, one is the degree of movement, or de sorry, the degree of improvement is often dependent on the amount of practice where one tries to minimize a task error. So for those of you, say, for example, who play golf, you swing the ball and you see where the ball lands, you have some goal to hit the ball to the pin, and basically, if it's long, you go a little bit less, and so forth, so you adjust. So you have an error signal. Error signals are very important. So you're trying to minimize some error. What that is, that's, again, a very complex thing, whether it's metabolic or movement, whatever. The variability of tasks, as well as task variability in the acquisition phase, so basically as you're learning something, is very important and it improves performance in subsequent sessions and helps in the generalization of learning new tasks. We can't possibly learn how to do every single task, but if we can generalize it, that's a very powerful thing. 
And it's the goal of not the movement. It's really just the goal of what you're trying to do. It doesn't matter if your limbs actually move in a certain way. And so some robots that actually move your limbs in the stereotypical pattern, that's not going to get a patient better. They have to basically think, and they're trying to do and achieve some type of goal. And then the kind of the dirty word of rehab. Therapists hate this word, compensation. We all hate, everybody always hates this word, right? And so the question is, your patients, and many of you guys, I'm assuming, show of hands, who are therapists in this room? Lots of therapists, right? So your patients you work with on a daily basis, they get better. Most, almost every patient you probably work with gets better. Some to a different degree, but most patients are getting better, right? The big question is, how are they getting better? Is it through recovery? And we would define recovery where damaged neural substrates, either in the spinal cord or in the brain, recover to the point where they're innovating the same muscles that they were innovating, that they used to do, innervate before the injury. Versus or compensation is where spared pathways, pathways not damaged in a spinal cord injury or a traumatic brain injury, are innovating alternative muscles to accomplish some certain goal. And so the big question is, do patients get better through recovery or compensation? And so that's something I'll touch on today. So you're saying, okay, well, how does this fit in with rehab? What, how do we kind of put this all into a context? Well, I'll show you some examples of gait training strategies that uh, have been quite popular over the last 20 years. And the first is manual assisted treadmill training. And you guys are probably familiar with it. You might even use it here. Very popular in Europe. Not as popular here in the United States because here you can see you need two, three therapists. But basically, as the patient is ambulating on the treadmill, you have one therapist on either leg and one maybe controlling the trunk and so forth. And so this is quite a popular thing. And this really derives from a lot of the animal work. Or if you take a spinalized cat, for example, and you train it on a treadmill for a long enough period of time, it will step with a quite a nice pattern a completely transected spinal cord. And so the thought was, Hugh Barbeau and others, maybe if we put patients in a harness and we move the limbs in this way, we can train the spinal cord, we can really get patients up and walking. So there's some advantages of bodyweight supported treadmill training, no doubt about it. You can, un so unloading of the weak lower extremity, so you put them in a harness, you provide bodyweight support allows individuals to safely practice gait earlier after stroke. And so a lot of, I know this is a spinal cord uh, symposium. Uh, some of the work that I'll show today is stroke and some is spinal cord injury. But uh, I think what you'll see is the take home messages applies to both. So you can get patients up walking in, in a safe manner. <clears throat> the volume of steps can far exceed overground gait training. You can take step after step and so forth. And the stationary positioning of the, of the subject is very convenient for you, the therapist. You're sitting along the side, you don't have to crawl along the floor as you, I showed in the video earlier. And so it's quite convenient. So I'll show a study that was published as one of the largest, if not still the largest funded rehab studies uh, from the National Institute of Health. Pam Duncan ran this study where they took hemipretic stroke patients and they had 408 and they stratified them to three groups and basically two months after their stroke. And so the first group received treadmill training with body weight support, similar to what we saw in that previous video, starting two months after the stroke. The second group received treadmill training with body weight support beginning six months after the stroke. And then the third group was a home exercise group. So they were basically went home 
and they were given a home exercise program of some balance exercises, some strengthening, some range of motion, some basic things, things that you give your patients when they are discharged. And that was supposed to be considered kind of the sham therapy, if you will. This is what patients, this is kind of a natural time course, not really an intervention. This is what we should expect. All subjects completed 36 training sessions, 90 minutes each. And so this is a busy slide, but I'll, I'll show you basically some key points here, if I can find my pointer. So at the baseline, essentially, there were no, this is mean, comfortable walking speed. So when they started this study, all of the subjects were basically walking at the same speed, which was almost 0.4 meters per second, so pretty functionally impaired patients. From, and then if you look at the change in walking speed from baseline, at six months, those that started manual-assisted treadmill training uh, at two months improved by 0.25. Those that started six months really didn't improve much at all because they really you know, started at six months. But then the home exercise group, which is interesting, improved just as much. And then at 12 months, there were no differences whatsoever between any of the groups. So here you have a really intensive therapy on the treadmill compared to a home exercise group of basically some strengthening, balance, and so forth, and they're all doing exactly the same. Same is true for looking at mean distance walked over six minutes, a really nice measure of endurance. They all start the same. Again, at six months, there's some differences, but at 12 months, essentially, there are no differences between these groups. So what this is saying is that it's not necessarily that manual-assisted treadmill training is any better. It's not worse, but it's really no better. And what was interesting is that subjects in the treadmill training group experienced higher frequency of dizziness and fainting during treatment, and those that were in the home exercise program fell significantly less. So they're getting the similar outcomes, but they're falling a lot less, so that, that makes you wonder. Similar findings in spinal cord injury. Some of you guys might know Eddie Fielfote. She recently moved from the Miami Project up to Shepherd Center. And she trained a group of chronic spinal cord injury patients, and she had four groups, so 74 individuals, four groups. Some received manual-assisted treadmill training. Some treadmill training was muscle, muscle stimulation to elicit a step. The third group received overground gait training, and finally, there was a robot training. All subjects five days a week for 12 weeks. Primary outcome in her study was overground walking speed, as well as, again, endurance measured with a six-minute walk test. And you could see here that the Best performing and changes in walking speed were those that walked over ground. Second best was treadmill training with stimulation, followed by treadmill training, and then the robot group didn't do so well. And then same for endurance. Overground group did quite well in terms of their change in endurance, change in distance walked over six minutes. The second best was treadmill training with stim. Treadmill training pretty flat. Uh, robot not so good. So we had this idea years ago. We were the first in the country to get a local mat. I met Gary Colombo, the inventor, when we were both graduate students, and I said, I'm moving to Washington. I'm moving to the National Rehab Hospital. If you sell me a local mat really cheap, I promise I will do amazing things with this. So we agreed, and so we got a local mat. And you guys have a local mat here? Yeah, so I don't have to go through how it works and so forth, but basically this is the local mat, if in fact you've never seen the device. So we had this, these hypothesis that this was going to answer the questions of some of the manual-assisted treadmill training because we thought, well, maybe the problem with manual-assisted treadmill training is that the therapists are tiring. So the training experience might be a bit more inconsistent. 
And so because these device, the locomat is actuated with motors, you could basically train these patients very consistently over the whole training session. For the locomat, the kinematics are very well controlled, so we could adjust the step lengths and so forth, how much hip extension of the patients. <clears throat> Again, we can get patients walking up earlier in their rehab program because of the security of the device. And because of the security, we thought that maybe patients wouldn't develop compensatory strategies. Maybe they walk with a more natural gait training strategy. So we were lucky, we were funded through a, a NIDR grant to study whether, answer this question, uh, whether robotic-assisted gait training with the locomat leads to higher functional returns and walking capability when compared to conventional rehabilitation. So we, uh, this is our inclusion criteria. It's quite busy, but basically some of the take-home messages uh, are that uh, essentially they were adults with a unilateral brain lesion within six months of their stroke. And so most of these patients were 112 days. That was the average after stroke to enrollment. Um, they could not be receiving any other therapy, so typically patients would go through acute care <clears throat> into inpatient rehab, discharge, then we would pick them up. And they had to be able to walk a short distance uh, without physical assistance, so five meters uh, on their own, so they were ambulatory, but their walking speed was 0.1 to 0.6 meters per second. So these were moderate to severely impaired patients, and we had lots of exterior uh, uh, exclusion criteria. We enrolled 72 patients, uh, nine dropped out for various reasons. We completed 63 patients in the study. Uh, 30 were, were randomized to the conventional group, 33 to the locomat group, and all subjects received 24 one-hour training sessions. So they come in three days a week, we would train them, and we would measure outcome, uh, well, I'll tell you about that in a second. The conventional was what you guys do every day. There was nothing unconventional about it. So basically, it was overground gait training, balance training, um, essentially full weight bearing, stretching, range of motion, and so forth. And we didn't control, so to speak, what the therapists were doing, but we gave them general guidelines with the goal of you want to make them walk better with a more stable gait pattern, but we documented everything, what they did, so we could compare to make sure that both groups were getting apples to apples. Um, the locomat, we train them like you guys probably train patients here with the locomat. So the first, first maybe one or two sessions, they're getting used to the device, you're making adjustments, setting it all up, and then essentially the subject was instructed to walk like the locomat. And so we would always provide the minimum amount of body weight support to the patient in order to ambulate, um, and we would start them slow. And then as they get better, we would reduce the body weight support, speed them up, until they were walking essentially at 45 minutes of total gait training. The goal was to base, some of the patients were able to walk really under their full body weight um, at the fastest speed the, the machine could go um, for quite a bit of time. And even some of the patients we were able to reduce the amount of guidance force in the robot. So basically they were doing even more work. We did lots of outcome uh, measures, as you can imagine. This was a five-year study. And so you don't want to get to the end of the fifth year and say, oh, no, I wish I really recorded this variable. So we did a lot of different uh, variables uh, uh, looked at. But the two primary outcomes in our study, similar to the other studies, were what, was their, what happened to their overground walking speed, what was the change in gait speed, and then endurance. Much to my surprise, everything I thought was wrong. So we thought for sure, excuse me, for sure that the locomat was gonna do better and we didn't find that. 
you could see this here is a plot of change in walking speed. So all the subjects came in and the average walking speed was 0.3 meters per second. After 12 sessions, you can see the, in the blue here, the uh, Locomat group improved by 0.06 meters per second, while the overground gait training group, or the conventional, improved by 0.18 meters per second. <clears throat> After 24 sessions, you can see the differences are quite profound. We brought them in three months later, and these differences were still sustained, where the Locomat group had improved by 0.15 meters per second versus the conventional train group 0.3. Now, 0.15 represents a 50% improvement in their walking speed. That's not bad, but it's not nearly as good as 100%. We saw the same thing for endurance. And so you could see here the first two at 12 sessions, 24 sessions, these differences in terms of their change in distance walked from baseline were statistically different. These were not when we brought them back in, but you could still see that the conventional group was walking about 67% further than the Locomat group. We didn't find any differences in some of the other measures, quality of life, strength, and spasticity, and so forth. We did find that the conventional uh, subjects were walking with a slightly higher cadence. And this is published if you ever want to copy the paper. It's quite a while back now. Um, seems just like yesterday we ran this study. <clears throat> but uh, this is the, essentially the reference here. So we have to ask ourselves, why aren't these interventions leading to better outcomes? We all thought that treadmill training was going to really blow away conventional. It didn't. We thought the locomat would address the problems with manual assisted treadmill training. It didn't. So let me see if I can take a shot at why we think it failed. This is a busy slide, but I'm going to take you through it. It's really easy to understand, and it comes back to very simple idea of the importance of visual feedback in learning. So this first row, pretend you're sitting in front of a robot, this is you, and it's a planar robot. It just allows you to move in a plane, almost like your arm is moving on a table. You don't move up and down, you just reach in a plane. And you grab the handle of a robot, and there's a monitor in front of you, and you're kind of sitting here, and you're presented with a target. And your goal is to reach to the target as fast as you can. That's all you're told. And so you're sitting there, the target appears, and you, nice straight line, you go to the target. And then it brings you back, you're sitting there. Now another target comes close to you, so you just do this star pattern. So basically, you're reaching to these different targets. Pretty basic. But then after about 100 movements, what they don't tell you is that they're going to turn the motors on, on this motor, and they're going to create this very weird field. It's almost like you're moving in a river that's swirling in all kinds of different directions. And so now, and you're not expecting it, it comes out of the blue. So now, as you go to reach for that target, what do you think happens? You're way off. You're totally wrong. It's, it's kind of like if you reach for a carton of milk, and you think it's full, and it's not, whoops, I'm all wrong, right? So your internal model of what you think you need to, the motor commands you need to execute, is wrong because now you are not compensating for the field that this motor is creating in this robot. But what's interesting is after about 200 movements, you learn how to compensate for the field. So you are adjusting your internal model such that you're compensating not only for your limb dynamics, but also this crazy swirling viscous field. What do you think happens when you turn the motors off? 
you're wrong, right? Now you're compensating to moving through this wildly moving river, and the river goes calm. And so now you have these after effects, and so you're off. And then you gradually adapt back. Simple, straightforward. This is all with proprioceptive feedback, visual feedback. Here, very similar to before, you're reaching out. But now what's interesting, as soon as you start to move, the monitor goes blank. So you don't see how you actually reach. You're relying solely on proprioception. So just proprioception. And what's interesting, you start straight line movements, no problem. The field turns on like before. You get these effects. You learn the field very well. And then you turn the motor off, you get an after effect. Straightforward. Here's where it gets really interesting down here. Now what you do is you give false vision. And so basically what you do is you provide visual feedback of the cursor's position, but you don't show the cursor how far to the left of the target you are or the right of the target you are. You only show how you're moving towards the target. So for example, if I'm reaching for the target here and my hand is way over here, it looks like I'm sitting on the target. So I'm basically just showing the linear distance to the target. So here, <clears throat> we start out, we make these reaching movements, nice and straight. The field turns on, similar to before, but now, what's interesting, you never learn. You never learn how to compensate for the field. So what does that tell us? It tells us that vision is so much more powerful than proprioception. Visual cues, visual feedback is absolutely key. So how does that, what does that matter? This seems like a tangent, right? Well, we were interested to see what are people actually doing in the locomat? Because they're basically walking in this robotic device and not quite sure what's going on. So we spent two years developing instrumentation to monitor what is a patient doing in the locomat. So we basically modified the device, we put markers on the patient, markers on the device. We have a, a treadmill here, you see in the video. We have a split belt treadmill with force plates underneath it. We have leg, six degree of freedom load cells on every single leg cuff. We even have force sensors on the foot lifters crazy project and I never would do it if I knew now what I or then what I know now but it was really cool but using all this instrumentation we could combine it we could create these musculoskeletal models we integrate it all and we could figure out what is the subject doing in terms of the forces they're exerting in the robot as well as how are their muscles firing and what we found was interesting this is just two plots I'll show you here at the end of stance phase, so your leg is back, what do you want to do at your knee? You want to flex your knee and bring your leg forward, right? What they're showing here is basically black is control, so that's healthy age-matched control subjects. Green is the unimpaired leg, red is the impaired leg. And what you find is that the stroke patients on their more impaired side are actually extending the knee rather than flexing the knee during swing. So that's a problem. If you look at during swing as well, rather than basically adducting the leg as they do in the control subjects and their unimpaired legs, they end up abducting. Does this look familiar? What do you call this? Circumduction, right? Here's the problem. She has no idea what she is doing is wrong. 
This is what she sees. So she thinks she's walking great. We watch her in the locomat. We say, you're doing great. Keep up everything you're doing. Meanwhile, everything she's doing is wrong. But she's not getting visual feedback. She has no idea. This is what she sees. And the robot's saying, hey, wait a minute. You're not moving the right way. I'm going to make you move that way. But she has no idea. And so she has in, inappropriate or really bad visual feedback. This might be even worse. Because now, how does this patient distinguish? Let's just say that this patient takes a good step. So their leg goes exactly where it needs to be. How does this patient distinguish what they did, what their brain commands, if you will, sent down the spinal cord to innervate these muscles, compared to what the therapist did? You now are getting this external interference, and it's really, really hard to learn when you have these external interference. So I think that when you start to break down some of these things, and I believe me, I am no, not innocent. I am just as guilty as a lot of these guys. I mean, I promoted and really worked hard at a lot, for a long time at studying devices like the locomat and so forth. Do I think it's a, a terrible device? Not at all. That's not what I'm promoting here. There are certain patients, like we saw in the overground walking, arguably the locomat might be better for patients like that. There are certain patients it's really good for. But I think we have to be realistic in terms of what is it doing in certain interventions like this. How are they helping? What are they doing? So some of the other principles that I think really need to be applied in rehab that aren't in these interventions. Diversity. The therapeutic interventions need to incorporate various tasks, right? Your goal is to discharge your patients so that they can go home, they can operate and you know, navigate society and so forth. Walking on a moving belt might not be the best way to do that. Variability. Most repetitive therapies focus too much on repetition and not the goal of the movement. And error feedback. I think patients need to be provided error feedback of their performance, not combined with performance of the therapist as well as the robot. So the question is, what role can robots play? Should they even be in the discussion of rehabilitation? Should we go to your gym right now and take anything with a motor or sensor and just scrap it? Should, is that what we should do? Well, I don't think so. I think that we need to really look at what these devices really, um, how they can best be used. And we believe that robotic systems can promote motor learning principles if you follow these kind of general rules. One is allow failure. So my background's in motor control, and in order to get better, you have to fail. You have to fail at a task. The consequences of failing at walking are catastrophic. We can't have that happen. So we have to provide patients like a safe environment where they can explore their workspace, like that child I was showing you before, that, that newborn, to figure out how to use residual pathways to best, best accomplish a task. Uh, say walking, but do it safely. Error feedback, let patients see how they're doing at a task through biofeedback and indications of performance. Progressive, allow patients to start easy. And as they get better, you make it more challenging for them. You don't start playing the piano with Bach, you start with, chop, start with chopsticks and then you progress, right? So you need to be able to progress your patients as well. Variability of tasks and task variability. Let patients practice lots of activities and let them explore their workspace. So we tried to figure out how can we promote these, these different uh, principles of motor learning. And that's why we developed this system. And the system is now in, I'm not sure where I am, but I think this direction uh, in your lab. And so this is zero G, this is what we basically developed. You put a harness on the patient, 
You lower it down, you can put, uh, the, you connect to the patient, you provide dynamic body weight support to the patient, and then they can practice a lot of different things, lots of activities and so forth. So before I, I kind of show some videos of patients using our system, um, what is dynamic body weight support? So do you guys use a light gate? Do you have a light gate? So light gate would be what we would think of as static body weight support. So basically you adjust the tension in the shoulder straps. If you stand up, they go slack. If you go down, it kind of catches you. And so dynamic is very different. Dynamic maintains constant tension. So this is basically Andrew and John and some others might recognize. Andrew's our software engineer at Aritech. And he demonstrates when we ask the system for 40 pounds, as he moves up and down, it maintains 40 pounds. So he, weigh, he thinks he weighs 40 pounds lighter right now in, while he's in the system. And it doesn't matter how you move up and down, it will maintain that constant force. So here you're providing a constant environment. And so as the patient is doing certain activities, if they get it right, they know it's because they got it right, not because the system jerked them up or maybe the therapist helped them too much and so forth. This is not very therapeutic, but it's very fun to do to graduate students when you work in my lab. You basically counteract their weight, and so I can make you perfectly weightless. So this is Lindsay, she's doing a master's degree with me, and we, she happened to weigh 120 pounds, which was within the limits of our body weight system, so we basically show how we can raise and lower her with a simple finger. And this is Tobias Neff, he did a postdoc with me, and um, helped work on a lot of the trolley tracking algorithms on zero-g. The system itself will track the patient, so you only feel that vertical body weight support. You don't feel the drag of the system and so forth. Again, we're, we're trying to create a really natural feeling environment. And some of the people in the audience today went through training and maybe they can attest to how it actually feels. But basically, I think more or less, it should feel pretty natural and pretty smooth. Except for Kevin, if he's in the room, then uh, he, he likes to do things a little bit more chaotic and a lot of body weight support. But, this is basically just an example of how the system is, is following you along. So some of the things that, that with a system like this you can do, the possible benefits, you can start practicing early uh, at a high intensity level. My colleagues, Gerben Young and Susan Horn, they studied 1,600 stroke patients and they looked at a million factors, everything you can imagine that might relate to outcomes. And when they did this kind of fishing expedition, if you will, this big statistical mess of data, what they found that the two factors that seemed to best relate to improvements in walking ability were early interventions and high intensity. Well, how do you take a big person, big patient, and a lot of you guys are, you know, small therapists for a 400 pound patient, and get them walking very early after their injuries at high intensity levels? It's really hard. That's why we need technologies. The dynamic body weight support may uh, allow for partial compensation of weakness, spasticity, and so forth. You can practice lots of different activities. And removing the fear of falling may even help the prevention of compensatory strategies. I'm not sure. We'll see. No barriers, so the therapist like to be able to work alongside and interact with the patient and lowers the risk for both the patient and the therapist. And so we have a wide range of patients using the system from toddlers down to 20 pounds up to bigger guys at 400 pounds across a wide range of diagnosis. We always say Zero-G doesn't discriminate who it's connected to. It doesn't really care. You just put a different size harness on there. So amputees, spinal cord injury and stroke and others, and then across wide range of different activities. So here's a couple examples. This is Tony. He's a 330 pound stroke survivor, super guy, just amazing. And, but you can imagine here's Tony on the left. If he goes down, 
there's probably he's going to get hurt as well as his therapist versus with the system you don't have to worry about that we just say let the system catch him the system will not break he's not going to get hurt and when you say how does it feel to walk in the system i just feel safe i feel like i can take chances and i'm not going to get hurt and so that's a really good thing a more functional gait and we like to see that on the left this is clarence another stroke survivor very first time he ever walks after his stroke. First time we had him up, he was walking. And while the therapist is, is trying to shape his movement, trying to help him prevent his left leg from collapsing, she's not holding him up. She's just shaping movement. And that's an important point. This is him one week later. And you can see much better control of his trunk. He's walking, he's got much better control of his predic left leg. And he's even letting his left arm down which is important arm swing. We always tend to forget how important arm swing is to gait, but very critical. Again, you can use the system. Uh, do you guys treat amputees here at Kessler? Yeah. So this is a woman, again, a crazy story. Really such a sweet woman. She had a flesh-eating virus, and she lost both her legs, and she lost quite a few digits on both hands. How anybody in this world can walk on legs like that is just a miracle, in my opinion. I, I just don't understand how you can do it. You know, she's really high, high amputation on the right side and you know, pretty reasonably high one on the left. And she's doing it. She walks with a walker. It's unbelievable. So it's kind of like one of the therapists once said to us, you know, zero G is just like an invisible set of hands. It's the hands that you want over your patient, but it is just a tool. It's just a tool that's letting you do what you want to do safer and hopefully more effectively. I apologize for the quality of this video, but we, we saw something that we thought was pretty cool, but, and we just took it on our phones. Um, it's a guy doing stairs. And this is a big guy. He was about 310 pounds. And he had two therapists here. One was um, basically a more senior therapist in the background and one uh, junior therapist. And, she said, should we try stairs with zero G? And you know, the other therapist said, look, this guy's being discharged. He's going home, his house has stairs. He has to learn how to do it. I'd rather him tr train and try it in the system rather than not in the system. And so it's just amazing. So here's where the dynamic body weight support really matters. As he steps up, it's maintaining constant tension in that rope as he goes up and down the stairs. And so if you were in like a light gate, obviously you can't take the gantry upstairs, but even if you could somehow do that, you can imagine it would just go slack. Another example, just sit to stand, and I know I'm running out of time, so I'll start to kind of accelerate, if you will, through the slides. So you could do functional activities, um, again, uh, with the system. <clears throat> and an incomplete spinal cord injury. This is a video I shot uh, just down at the Miami Project the other day, an incomplete spinal cord injury. Um, Amazing. She has uh, two walk-aid devices to help with foot drop, and um, she's walking quite well. First time she said she walked without her, um, her uh, crutches. And so we had maybe 40, 40%, 30 to 40% body weight support with her. And another, another uh, this is uh, Louise. She's also walking first time. It took a lot of coaxing but the first time she would walk without a walker and uh, she was holding on pretty tight so their hands are probably uh, turning blue here but she, uh, she does it and that's, that's just great. 
So we have some other things I won't really go through. We have some balance programs, some games where you can play Tetris. And you guys, I walk, you know, go in and try it. You could talk to some of your colleagues here who've been going through it. But some of these things that you could try to have fun with therapy. You, some of these games are pretty cool. This is Tetris where you play it. And one of the byproducts, not only are you moving side to side, so you're actually you know, forcing them to balance themselves, postural control, but you're also practicing problem solving. So some of the patients that have maybe some cognitive issues, it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, some of the research, I'll just show you two cool videos. This was the Walk Again project we were part of down in Brazil. This uh, exoskeleton right here, a little different than what you guys have here. This guy is controlling this exoskeleton through a brain-computer interface. They're, they're literally recording EEG from this guy, and they're driving the motors, and he's taking steps in the device. Uh, one of these individuals was trained, in fact, this guy here, he went out onto the soccer field at this year's World Cup and kicked the soccer ball to open the World Cup. And so this is, this is not going to happen anytime soon. You won't see these, uh, you know, being people using them. But the cool thing is they're pushing the field forward, and I think that ultimately they, this will be with implants, this will be the wave of the future. They have two zero Gs, they're not dueling, they're actually being used. You can see they're holding up the, the robot and so forth there. Another really cute video, um, Dr. Laura Prosser, she's at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia treating toddlers with cerebral palsy. I mean, these kids are literally, they, they, you know, you can't communicate with them. You can't tell them to stand up and walk. But what was amazing it was like a light switch. It was something, as soon as you provided them some body weight support, they just stood up. It was like, it, 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 this haptic field just told them, I need to stand up. So she did this really cool research study at the National Institutes of Health, a pilot study, and she's now at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and she just got a, a NIDR grant, three-year, $600,000 grant to continue this work. So we're super excited to support that and see where that ends up going. And the coolest part of all this is you guys have one. And so there's all this stuff you guys can kind of do here. So I'll wrap up here.